tonight too. Would you join me in Psalm 91 tonight? Psalm 91 ought to be easy to find right in the middle of the Bible, the Psalms. The Greeks had a really odd habit of making gods in their own image. Talk about irony. The true God made us in his image. But the Greek people had a way of concocting gods made in their image. And they had um, supernatural strength with human flaws. I'm sure you know some of their, their gods. But there was one interesting one. He was, um, he was considered the god of the fields and the pastures. He was the shepherd god. He was half goat, half human. His name was Pan. Pan is the Greek word for all. He was called Pan because he was allegedly adored by all the other gods. He was quite the complex character. In fact, uh, he was known for playing a set of pipes. You might remember the Pan pipes. And a little set of reed pipes, and that's why they became known as Pan pipes. So half goat, half human. And his personality was varied. They said he was at times genial, uh, friendly, always licentious, so no regard for restraint. And at times mischievous. And it's said that one of his particular amusements, his diversions, was he would hide in the woods. Again, he's supposedly god of the pastures. And when travelers would come down the, along the, the byway, by the forest, he would hide. And his whole intent was to cause dread and foreboding. It's funny, as I was reading the background to it, I, I had a flashback to being in San Francisco one time. This is back when I used to go to San Francisco. And uh, we were downtown Fisherman's Wharf, and there used to be a guy that would have this tree that he would hide behind a trash can and rustle the tree and freak out unsuspecting people. Did any of you ever see that in trips to San Francisco? Yeah, I used to watch. <laughs> I sad to say I was watching with amusement as people would be startled by this guy. But it's exactly what Pan would do. He would hide in the forest, allegedly again, and passersby would come and he'd snap some twig or rustle some bushes. And the people would stop and they'd look around and you could just sense there was this anxiety building. The travelers would go on a little quicker pace now and Pan would scamper ahead. And now he'd rustle more trees and snap some limbs. And by this point, the people were picking up their pace and the hairs in the back of their neck, you can imagine, standing up. And as they would make their way farther down, he'd run ahead. And at some points, he'd let out this blood-curdling cry or he'd put out an animal sound, and by this time, they'd be in a full bolt running away as Pan is laughing in amusement, but the people were experiencing what came to be known as panic from the name Pan. Did you know that was the origin of the word panic? I have never seen such a tendency for panic amongst God's people as I have in the last... Um, Three, four years, starting around the time of the pandemic. Interesting, pandemic. Now, that comes from the word all, didn't come from the god pan, because it allegedly can affect everybody, right? But amazing, as soon as Dr. Fauci started pontificating, man, the anxiety that built in people. You talk about churches being divided, you know, to mask or not to mask, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, whatever. But what struck me was how easy it was for Satan to get us to have this sense of dread. Now, let me bring it down to right where we are today. I was watching news of these uh, attacks in Israel, and I was watching some of the, the Christian stations and uh, some of the conservative news outlets, and they were given descriptions of the atrocities that occurred to some of these families. And I'll tell you, you, you read some of that and you think, that could happen here. Uh, did it ever occur to you that, you know, with our border wide open, not everybody coming through our southern border has America's interest in mind? And you hear that and you think, oh, man, I don't know if I'm even safe. I, I took a walk today. I parked over at um, Cherry Island uh, Sports Complex there, and I walked the bike trail, and I saw more turkeys than humans, and then I saw more homeless than any other humans after that. And, you know, the thought occurred to me, okay, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. If somebody on drugs decides to do something deranged, and I began to think, you know, I, every time I go for a prayer walk, I always pray, Lord, I'm not here to tempt you. I'm not here to get mugged or hurt. I'm here to commune with you. Would you just please protect me? Amen. And some people think, well, they let them come for me. I'm packing, you know, I'm carrying. Well, I wouldn't carry anything except Psalm 91. And uh, I'm not opposed to carrying. The Second Amendment allows it. I think, man, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And it's not a bad idea to be armed. But I want to tell you, even if you're armed, are, does that guarantee your protection? 
See, the Lord's our protector. And that's why I want to take you to Psalm 91 tonight. I call this in the habitation of the Most High. In the habitation of the Most High. This has been called over the years the, the soldier's psalm because it has been recited by many a soldier on the battlefield as a claim of God's protection. Let me read, let me read a portion of it. We're going to cover the whole thing, Lord willing, but let me read at least the first uh, seven verses here. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Now, we're not quite halfway into the psalm. Lord willing, we'll get into all of it. But suffice to say, this is an amazing promise. And some have said, you know, well, who's the context? Who wrote the psalm? That's an interesting discussion. You read some commentaries, and some say Moses wrote it. Um, the reason they claim that, the previous psalm, if you look at Psalm 90, look at the heading under Psalm 90. It says, a prayer of Moses. That is one of the oldest portions of Scripture we have. Moses' Psalm 90 which that's the one, you know, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 91? Um, verse um, 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. That has been around since the beginning, since the earliest times of, of the written word. So that's one of the oldest portions of Scripture, and that leads some to say, well, evidently, you know, our dwelling place in Psalm 90 and our secret place in Psalm 91, some have concluded, well, Moses wrote it. Others say, no, it was written by David. It was written by David when he was hiding in the caves of Engedi, hiding from Saul who wanted to kill him. Truth of the matter is nobody can say with any authority who actually wrote it. We just know that God wrote it. And it's interesting. Uh, God always has a human writer. It could have been either of those men, could have been neither of those men. We know this. It was given by inspiration of God. But it's interesting that you can't really nail down the context of it I wonder why. I, I really believe this is a timeless psalm meant for all of God's people in any generation. So what do we, what do we glean from it? Well, I'm going to break it down into three areas tonight. So again, I call it in the habitation of the Most High. I'm going to start with this, a premise established. Premise, like the word promise, but P-R-E instead of P-R-O. What's a premise? A premise is a truth upon which you build some foundational conclusions, okay? A premise. So we're going to start with a premise. And that's in verses 1 and 2. So go back with me here. And I will tell you, I'm going to spend a good bit of time on these two verses because they literally lay the foundation for the psalm. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Okay, what do we, what do we learn here? What is the secret place? Well, when I was a kid, my dad built us a tree fort at our house. Now, my dad was a general contractor. So some kids, you know, they'd have a few pieces of timber slapped up with a, a pallet nailed to a tree. Oh, no, not my dad. My dad had a full, above our shed, a full little house built with cedar shake roof, uh, wood siding. It had a ladder up the front. It had a sloping set of steps in the side. This thing was the bomb. It had an outside porch as well as an inside area. I mean, it was amazing. And that was our clubhouse, right? You might remember, like, uh, years ago, our, our, our gang, Little Rascals, you know, and no girls, keep out. Okay, so that was their secret place. Hey, if you're married, you might have your secret getaway. You know, just us, no kids. Um, some people spell that Marriott, you know, Hilton, Hyatt. One man says, I don't know what's wrong with my wife. I, I built her the nicest blind. We had a deer blind, and I, I had a heater in there. And, and the pastor said to her, Bubba, your wife spells romance Hilton, you know, Marriott, not duck blind or deer blind. But some people, they got their special little spot. I, I want to know, do you have your special little spot with God? Now, for me, that changes all the time. I'm at Tim and Megan's house, and, and uh, yesterday I sat on their front porch. It was cool in the morning, and I sat out there, and I, I was reading a message, a sermon by John Wesley as I was opening up my Bible, and it was, it was a good time. Um, my, my spot changes but my habit doesn't change. I spend time with God. Now, my times change. I'm always jumping time zones. I came here from Florida, so 
And uh, this summer I was out in Hawaii, and I know I lost all your prayer support when I told you that. But, you know, uh, I'm changing time zones all the time. But I, I, there's always time with God at some point during the day, time with him. I love the song Ron Hamilton wrote, and you probably have heard it, called My Quiet Time. Before I start each day, there is a special place. I love to get alone and seek my Savior's face. I find wisdom in his word to instruct me in his will. And I hear his gentle voice say, my child, be still. My quiet time alone gives me power to obey. My quiet time alone with God each day. Each day I meet him there. I talk to him in prayer. My quiet time alone with God. You know, Ron Hamilton went to be with the Lord last year, and I watched his funeral. It was really amazing. Talk about a life that was given to honoring God, even in the midst of having lost his eye, and then they lost their son on Mother's Day, took his own life, and they've, they've had some trials, Ron and Shelley Hamilton. But there was a guy who walked with God. Even in his dementia, uh, Shelley was saying, you know, some people become hostile when they start to lose their mind. Ron just became more agreeable, kind, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Interesting. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Notice the verbs dwell and abide. I preached on abiding last night. It's talking about that uninterrupted fellowship with God. Do you have that? Now, what's interesting here, personal time with God is prioritized, but protection from God is promised. So let me make those two observations. First of all, personal time is prioritized, but then protection is promised. Look at verse 2. I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge. Okay, stop there for a minute. Refuge. So if you, if you were to go to an, a wildlife refuge, what's something that humans cannot do at a wildlife refuge? You can't kill animals. You can't hunt them, right? That's a refuge, okay? So refuge is a place of protection. Interesting. What's a fortress designed for? Also protection. Remember in the, the days of the Wild West and they would build these forts? Fort is a shortened form of the word fortress. And what's a fortress? A place of protection. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. And notice, my God. In him will I trust. He, he's not some inanimate granite. You know, he's not just some safe space. Whole world's talking about safe spaces. You know, scripture says, great peace will they have, uh, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. If you're a person easily offended, you know what it tells me? You don't love the law of God like you should. If you're offended, I'm offended, that offends me. Well, get over it. You know, if you love God's law, you'll not be easily offended, that's for sure. But he's your, he's your protection. Now, at this point, I would have just moved on. But when I'm studying, I always, um, I'm interested in multitude of counselors, so I'm cracking, up a, cracking open a few commentaries. And one of my favorite guys to read after is uh, John Phillips. The man spent hours in the Word. And John Phillips pointed out something in this passage I would have completely missed. He said, in these two verses, there are four specific names of God that are given, and each of those names teaches something about the protection of God. So notice verse uh, 1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Okay, the first title for God is the Most High. That's interesting. That is the name Elyon. In English, that would be spelled capital E-L-Y-O-N, Elyon. What does it mean? It literally means possessor of heaven and earth. It has to do with possession, ownership. Okay, think about this. Uh, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Who owns the world? God does. You, you know, we all have heard that song, He's got the whole world in His hands. Uh, he doesn't just have it in His hands, He owns it. You know, we, we often talk about, well, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And somebody said, yeah, all the hills and all the, all the land that's under the hills and the earth on which all that land sits. He owns the whole thing. Okay, he's possessor of heaven and earth. So think about this. When you, when you feel overwhelmed by COVID or crises in the Middle East or, you know, what's going to happen in my finances? Uh, I don't know if I'm safe living in California. Okay, think about this. Who owns it all? God does. You're in his jurisdiction. And interestingly, it's translated the most high. Why, why that? Because he's above everything. There, there is nobody above God. You know, some people have a landlord to whom they pay rent. and it's, God is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the most high. 
Interesting. So it speaks of his possession. But then notice this. There's the term almighty. The end of verse 2 says, shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. And that's an interesting term. That is the term Shaddai. You've heard of El Shaddai, right? Shaddai. S, capital S, S-H-A-D, then a second D, A-I, Shaddai. What does Shaddai mean? Well, this has to do with uh, provision. Provision. It means lavish provider. Lavish provider. Um, he, El Shaddai, the Lord Shaddai, is the one who can meet everything you will ever face, every need you ever have. I thought of Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to what? His riches and glory. Let me ask you, is, are the riches in glory affected by the strength of the American dollar? Are the riches in glory affected by what happens with cryptocurrency? No. So you may think, oh, I can't afford whatever right now because the dollar has been inflated and I just, oh, I'll tell you, I was really challenged last uh, Wednesday a week ago. So tomorrow would be a week back. I was at my daughter's church, Lighthouse Baptist in Gulf Breeze, Florida, and they had a missionary from Haiti come. Uh, his name is Ramil Casimir. And Brother Ramil grew up in Haiti. He was from a family of 10 children. And uh, he, he got saved as a kid, got burdened for ministry. God called him to preach. He studied for ministry, and he stayed in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And, you know, Haiti's one of the poorest countries in the world. And he and his wife have seven children. He has started 66 different churches. He was friends with the, past, uh, sorry, the president of Haiti, who was then executed recently. I think it was earlier this year the president was executed. And uh, so... Port-au-Prince was taken over by the president's rival, and he had an orphanage with 200 orphans in it. These kids all came from that earthquake that happened a few years back. Remember that severe earthquake? And these kids were dropped off at his church. He started an orphanage. And listen to this. I just talked to him last week. I'd never met him before. He and his wife adopted all 200 of those kids. They don't just have an orphanage. They all have the Casimir last name now because he said, I wanted them to have a mom and dad. Now, this man's in one of the poorest countries in the world, and they had to flee Port-au-Prince uh, back in April. They went up to the mountains. He said the kids were sleeping out under the stars. They had nowhere to go. And he said, but God is providing. And he said, uh, you know, I said, do you have money? He said, God brings them money. Do you have help? He said, we have so much help, I can't tell you. And he said, God is just bringing it in. You talk about simple faith. Sometimes in America, we just get so stressed out. Oh, I can't pay my mortgage. I can't pay. Listen. My God shall supply all your need. If you'll seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. So if bills aren't being paid, maybe the first question is, okay, am I honoring God in my finances? Let me, let me just tell you, I am, I'm of the persuasion that tithing was not done away in the New Testament. I believe that tithing was established before the law. Remember, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. There was no law established. Moses hadn't even been born yet, okay? That was pre-law. And then Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, you, you uh, tithe mint, anise, and cumin, and, but you omit, the, you omit the weightier matters of the law. And then he goes on to say, these you ought to have done, i.e. tithing, and not to have left the other undone. So Jesus never annulled the principle of tithing. And I, I want to tell you, one of the most important financial principles I ever learned in my life is financial security is really tied into your giving. You shouldn't give to be financially secure, but if you're not financially secure, you ought to take a look at, am I honoring God in giving? He says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. Luke 6, 38. Interesting, shall men given your bosom. That's not an eternal reward in the future. It is now God will in some way compensate you when you give to him. Does God need your 10%? God doesn't need a nickel from you or me. But it's a principle to remind us that everything we have comes from him. And by the way, in case you want to know, a pastor did not ask me to preach on giving, okay? But, and I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't practice it myself. We have seen God meet our needs unbelievable. I live hand to mouth. We don't have a salary. We just get whatever comes in in churches. Uh, I'm not rich. Now my name is, okay? But that's the extent of it. But God meets the needs. God will supply according to his riches and glory. I was telling pastor years ago, where Brother Johnson is now up at uh, Greeley Hill Baptist, Brother Howard was the pastor there in the past. And he, when I was a young college guy, he said, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I'm going to be an evangelist. He said, 
Rich, don't forget California. When you get out in evangelism, a lot of guys from the Midwest or the East never make it out here because he said, I get it, it is really expensive to travel out here. He said, but please don't give up on California. Don't forget California. Well, I will tell you, my Freightliner truck normally when I, when I drive, it's six miles a gallon. That's diesel, six miles a gallon. You know what diesel is right now? I, I promised the Lord a long time ago, I will not be, base where I take meetings on whether or not I can afford it. You know, if God's big enough, he can provide we, God meets our needs. And I'll tell you, he's not partial to evangelists. He promises to meet your needs. So he's provider, okay? That's the term for Shaddai. So we have possession, God's own, God owns everything. Provision, God provides for our needs. But then look, verse two, I'll say of the Lord. Okay, Lord, all capital letters. Now, when you see Lord in all caps, what, what Hebrew name of God was that? Yeah, we don't know exactly how it was said. We, we believe they said either Jehovah or Yahweh. What, they didn't say it. About the time of the Maccabean Revolution, they, they didn't want to use God's name in vain, so they substituted Jehovah or Yahweh with the term Adonai, and Adonai means Lord. That's why in our Bible, you'll see Lord in all capital letters whenever the name Jehovah is referenced. Well, what does Jehovah mean? Jehovah means I am that I am, and specifically He's talking about promise. This is speaking of promise. Look, he told Moses, I am that I am. And you remember he's called Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see, the Lord will provide. When God sees the need, he provides for the need. So this speaks of, of um, promise. If he makes a promise, he's going to back it up. Sometimes we tell our kids, I promise we'll go camping this weekend. And then it rains. I promise we'll take that family vacation. And then the boss says, look, we need you to go troubleshoot this. And, you know, our plans fall through because we're not, we're not God. But God never made a promise that he doesn't fully stand behind. He has all power and he has all knowledge. So Jehovah, the Lord, speaks of his promise. But then there's the term God. Notice the end of verse 2. He's my refuge, my fortress, my God. Now that is the name Elohim, capital E, L. O-H-I-M, L-O-E-L-O-Him, H-I-M, M like man, okay, Elohim. What does Elohim mean? Well, the term Elohim is God the creator. God the creator, and this speaks of his power. Think about this, how did the world come about? Well, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the earth bring forth, and the earth brought forth. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9 says, For he uh, commanded, and it came to pass. He commanded, uh, he spake, and it happened. Uh, sorry, I'm butchering it tonight. He commanded, it was so, he, com he spake, and it came to pass. Exodus uh, 20, verse 11 says, In six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. How did that come about? Well, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, okay? So him what? Him who? The word. The living word uttered the oral word, and everything came to pass. And you talk about power. That's God. So you think about this, the whole concept here, and I would have completely missed it if I hadn't spent some time reading through that commentary and thinking about it. Yeah, we have the name Most High, we have the name Almighty, we have Lord and we have God. That is the premise for this whole psalm. And every one of those things tells us something important about God. So that's the premise established. There is a personal time with God prioritized and there's protection from God that is promised. But then I want you to see number two, a picture enhanced. A picture enhanced. And we'll start in verse three and go down to verse eight. Interesting picture here. So having made this promise, I'm gonna protect you. I'll, you'll be under my shadow. Verse 3, he says, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of a fowler. Okay, what would, what's another word for a snare? If you're, a fowler is one who's hunting for what? Birds, fowl, right? So he's hunting for birds. So what's a snare mean? Yeah, it's a trap. He'll deliver you from the trap of the bird hunter, the snare of the fowler, and from the noisome pestilence. That's interesting. You know what? That's grievous, widespread disease. Isn't that interesting? If you're a bird, what would threaten your existence? Hunters and disease, predators and disease, right? Verse four, he shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. 
His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Look at verse 8. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. All right, there's a picture enhanced. And there are two pictures here, actually. God often does something we don't do in English. He'll use mixed metaphors. Okay, you know what a mixed metaphor is? I say, man, that guy is amazing. I'll tell you what, he threw the touchdown. Man, he hit the home run. Well, okay, I would be mixing football and baseball in that analogy, right? So we're taught in English, you don't mix metaphors, but God does it all the time. And he's God, he can do what he wants. Okay, so we have here a bird analogy, and then we have a battle analogy. Bird analogy in verse three and four. I was gonna call it an avian analogy and an army analogy, but in the interest that maybe some of you like avian. Okay, you ever go to an aviary? What do they keep in in captivity in aviary, birds. So we'll just simplify it, okay? There's the bird analogy, and then there's the battle analogy. So look at the uh, bird analogy here. Verse three, again, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. Okay, if you're a bird, then a hunter or a predator would be a threat to your life. And then it says he will um, deliver you from the noisome pestilence. So disease can take an animal. Verse four, he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Heard a story of a missionary who was in Africa. He was in a real dry region of Africa where it was uh, plains like our western prairies. And the people lived in abject poverty. They, they had houses made of mud bricks, and they had thatched roof. One day, a fire came through. It'd be like a prairie fire up in Canada, the western provinces of Canada. So this fire ripped through there in Africa and, and everybody lost just about everything they owned. The houses went up and their property was burned. And here this missionary is there. He's trying to reach these people with the gospel. Well, they're so poor, they can hardly even focus on anything but trying to get their lives back together. They'd lost everything. They got to rebuild everything. So obviously his ministry was put on hold and he's trying to think, what is my strategy at this point? One day he's taking a walk out in the charred remains of his village, and he gets on the outskirts of town, and he comes across this, what had been a nest, a bird nest, and on top of it was a hen, and, and she'd been burned to a crisp. And the missionary thinking, you know, it's affected all the creatures, all the people. He kicked at that bird with the heel of his boot. Not sure why we do these kind of things, you know, he just kicked at it, and when the bird knocked off the top of the nest, out scurried three little chicks alive. And it struck him. He thought those chicks survived because that mother spread her wings over those young. Um, who taught the mother? Is, that, is it morality? Does the mother, you know, she doesn't have morals, but she has instincts. And interesting, if, if a young hen would give her life to save her chicks, how much more would a benevolent God literally give his life to save you and me. And that was the message that he used to reach those people. One died so others would live. So he promises protection. That's the bird analogy. But then there's the battle analogy. Right in the middle of verse four, he switches pictures. Notice, his truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Interesting, the word shield there is not just like a Captain America circular shield. That's one of those long shields that went up to the neck and uh, they, were, they could lock them together. You've seen probably depictions of ancient warfare where they'd have these huge shields from behind which they would fire arrows and they would have some sense of protection. The word buckler is a, a shaped shield, kind of a semicircle. And the idea of it was because of the shape, you would have protection from anywhere in the front. In interesting, not from the back, not made for retreat. But when you're behind the shield that's sloped or semicircular, you're protected from anything coming out ahead of you. So the battle analogy, in fact, go to verse five. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. Now, it, it would be frightening enough to fight in broad daylight. Imagine fighting at night. I remember back in the early 90s when the uh, Operation uh, Desert Storm first gain prominence in the news and watching guys with night vision technology. That was brand new in the early 90s. Some of you know it from your military experience. And what, a, what an advantage the U.S. forces had 
over those they're fighting who did not have night vision technology. You literally could take guys out in the middle of the night. Well, let me tell you, God sees in full technicolor in the middle of the night. You know, he says in Psalm 139, the darkness hideth not from thee. He sees everything. So God sees, he says, all right, I'm gonna, you're not going to be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day. Okay, so if you're in battle, it's like bullets flying, arrows flying. At, at that time, arrows, swords, and spears were the means of fighting today. It's bullets and grenades and IEDs, etc. He says, you don't have to fear that stuff. Look at verse 6. Nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. Okay, what's pestilence referred to? Disease. And again, this is a widespread disease. This, I found this really interesting when we were dealing with the pandemic and everyone's fear about it. Oh, no, you know, I don't want to go out in public and well, we can't meet in church. It's funny. Everybody could amass at liquor stores and Home Depot, uh, Walmart, but you couldn't gather at church, right? Something wrong with that picture. So he says, look, I'll take care of you, even with pestilence. I read 1776 by... Uh, I think that was by McCullough uh, about two years ago. And he was talking about when George Washington was, had the troops at Valley Forge that winter of 1776, they lost so many of their troops and nobody was firing any shots. It was because of disease, dysentery and other problems that came into the camp. And, and if you've got a band of men together, you've got companies of men together, not only are there the dangers of war, dangers of destruction, but there's danger of disease. He says, no, I, I'm going to take care of you from this. Notice the end of verse 5, nor for the, uh, I'm sorry, end of verse 6, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. And I thought about that, that missile that uh, apparently got away from Hamas today and hit the hospital, and now they're blaming the Jews for it, but if, don't believe all this spin in the, in the, uh, in the media. And so apparently the Israelis have drone coverage of, no, this was a rocket that went off course and struck, the, struck this um, hospital and hundreds were killed. You think, man, that's just it. I mean, like 9-11, what if I'd have been in the World Trade Towers? It's amazing. Normally in the World Trade Towers, there'd be up to 50,000 people in those offices. It's incredible to me that we now... This is not to minimize it, but we lost fewer than 3,000 people on 9-11. That's terrible. Every single loss is terrible. But I want to tell you, it could have been exponentially more. I have friends that said, I was supposed to be at the World Trade Towers that day. Plans got changed. Boss asked for this. I, I talked to a guy. He's a pilot. He said, I was supposed to be on the plane that was hijacked from Boston. And I had another guy ask if he could take that flight for me that day. It would help him out. And I said, okay, sure, I'll take a later flight. I mean, story after story of God looking out for his people. So God doesn't want you and me to live in fear. He says, look, you be in the center of my will. I'm going to take care of all this. Look at verse 7. So we have um, the, ba the battle analogy. It continues. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. You know, Brother Rogers, I never met um, Glenn Schunk, but... Um, Brother Larry Brubaker, who had traveled with Ron Comfort for years, once said to me, have you ever heard Glenn Shunk's life story? I said, no, I haven't. He said, you need to hear it, Rich. So he gave me some CDs of Glenn Shunk preaching. And Glenn Shunk was talking about when he was in the war in, um, uh, was, he, was he World War II? Two. Yeah, and he was in foxholes. And he said, everybody wanted to be with me. And he said, because I, I never got hit. He said, I'm in a foxhole. And he said, I've got guys with me. He said, I had guys get killed in my foxhole. But he said, everybody was in the foxhole with me. I'd talk to him about the Lord. I'd witness to him. And he said, finally, toward the end, he got an injury. And that's what, you know, caused him to come home. It wasn't life-threatening. But he said, that's how God got me out at the end. But he said, time after time, conflict after conflict, God was in it. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you're in the military, you should just go run out in the middle of open fire, like, try to take me out. I'm God's man. No, we're not talking about presumption, okay? Remember when Satan tempted Jesus, throw yourself off the temple mount. He said, no, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, we're not there to tempt God. But he promises if you're doing right and you're in the middle of his will, you don't need to live in fear. I'm going to protect you. Okay, look at verse 8. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Now, what's the reward of the wicked? You probably know the wages of sin is what? Only with your eyes you'll behold and see the reward of the wicked. 
Amazing. I, I, I read the life story or the uh, war story of Desmond Doss. He was the uh, Seventh-day Adventist guy who, the Hacksaw Ridge, the story of Hacksaw Ridge, who he was a, he was a um, uh, non-combatant, you know, a conscientious objector, but he went in to serve, and uh, although he was Seventh-day Adventist, I believe from reading his testimony that he didn't believe in salvation by grace. Interesting story. So he's on the battlefield, does not carry a weapon, and he drug man after man off a hacksaw ridge in this horrific battle. I think they estimate 75 to 100 men he personally lowered off of that, that ridge to safety, and bullets were flying all around him, and there was a hand of God protecting him. That's what God's talking about here. I will protect you. All right, so that leaves us to the last observation I want to give you. A promise elaborated. And this is in verses 9 to 16. We haven't read this far yet, so let's pick up in verse 9 if you'd follow with me there. Verse 9, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay. Now, we need to get into the details of this. God's promising protection. It's often called the soldier's psalm. It was used both in World War I and World War II repeatedly by soldiers invoking God's protection. One of my favorite stories comes from the Battle of Dunkirk, World War II. Two prior to the U.S. entering the war, it was 1939, and there was a company of soldiers that were pinned down on the beaches of Dunkirk, and it looked like they were facing imminent annihilation. In fact, King George VI, that was Elizabeth's uh, father, realized it was such a desperate condition that he called for people across the British Empire to pray for our troops. There were people not only in Britain, Ireland, Scotland, but also in Australia, uh, Canada, even in the U.S., even though we're not a a British territory anymore, all over the English-speaking world, people were praying for the folks at Dunkirk. Well, God did an amazing thing in answer to that petition. Um, There were four specific acts of providence, miracles that occurred. For one, Hitler ordered his advancing army to a halt That's interesting. You study the history of World War II, you will find that the Germans made some really incredibly, to their cause, hurtful decisions, strategic blunders along the way. Um, Thinking about Normandy when um, Rommel's wife was having a birthday, so he went to celebrate his wife's birthday thinking nothing was going to happen. And man, the attack was made and Hitler was being summoned. He was told, don't wake me up. And they tried to wake him up and he was sleeping in and wouldn't be bothered, and oh man, strategic blunders like this. So why was Hitler ordering the the advancing army to stop? Well, another amazing thing had happened, and that's this unusual storm had settled in over France at this time. It was not the time of year when they normally would have storms, but this horrific storm had come in. That prevented the German planes from flying. The Luftwaffe was grounded. So Hitler wanted air support for his ground troops, so he said, all right, stop the advancing army. They could have wiped out hundreds of thousands of allied forces that were there. So there's this unprecedented storm that's going on. There's this um, unexplained advance that's stopping. But then something else happened. There was this unusual calm on the English Channel. Now, you know, France and England are only separated by a very small span there, the English Channel. And while there's this horrific storm settled over France, amazingly, the English Channel was unusually calm. And this allowed one of the largest naval evacuations in all of history. In fact, at the time, it was the largest naval evacuation. They conscripted ships not only from the Navy, but also private vessels, fishing vessels, pleasure craft, (laughs) small boats. And they were making trips back and forth across the English Channel, evacuating troops. In fact, in the end, they said there were 338,000 and change. 338,000 evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk. 
One other amazing story. There was a particular group, uh, company of guys that were being pinned down by the German fire. They were being strafed with uh, artillery fire and machine guns, etc. And these guys had all committed to memory the 91st Psalm, the Psalm that we're reading. And the 400 of them in unison began to quote, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Going on, you know, verse 7, A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand. Bullets flying everywhere, munitions dropping all around them. But interestingly enough, not one of those 400 men received a single injury. Completely spared. Now, why do I tell that? Because I, I, I know the way the mind thinks, and we're like, well, that's it then. We just all memorize Psalm 91. It's like our lucky rabbit's foot, right? We just quote it. In fact, I can imagine some military guy saying, I'll just get it tattooed on my bicep, you know, and when I'm in trouble, I'll just read it right off my brawny muscle. Is that the approach we're supposed to take? No, in fact, if we think a little more deeply about it, we think, well, does that mean Christians never die in battle? Did any of you serve with somebody that you knew was a believer and died in battle? So how are we to understand this? I hate to use kind of a crude analogy, but is it just like Russian roulette? Russian roulette is where you put one bullet in a chamber, otherwise everything else is empty, and you spin it, and somebody pulls the trigger, and hopefully you're not the one that gets the bullet. Is this like biblical roulette? Some die and some don't, and oh, well, if you get the bullet, sorry. How are we to make sense of this? Now let's dive into it. Promise elaborated. Notice this. First of all, there's exemption from evil. Verses 9 to 10 here. Um, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Now there's an important quantifier there, first of all. Notice whoever wrote this, whether David or Moses or whoever else God may have used, he said, look, because you've made the Lord your habitation, the Lord who is my refuge. Okay, notice this. This is a particular promise for people of God. This is not a promise to the non-believer. Now, does God sometimes protect unbelievers? Yeah, he does. I've heard amazing stories of heroism of God protecting unbelievers. But he doesn't promise to protect the unbeliever. The promise is to those who have made the Lord their refuge. You say, well, that, that would be me. Okay, so does that mean we'll never die? Well, let me further elaborate. Any of you know the name Corey Tenboom? She and her family were giving safe harbor to Jews in Holland during the Nazi occupation of her country. They were a Christian family. They weren't Jews themselves. They were Christians. But they were giving safe harbor because they knew that God said, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. That's why I'm always concerned when it comes to foreign policy. Where does our government stand in connection with Israel? Uh, because God made special promises to Israel, and you don't want to come out on the wrong side of those promises. And so he, the, the Jews, or sorry, the ten booms were taking Jews into their home. You've, you've heard the stories about the hiding place, etc. And, and incredibly, Mr. Tenboom would quote with his family this psalm all the time, God's protection. Well, one day, word was leaked that they were doing this. They were giving safe harbor, and after months of doing so, the entire family was arrested. The last time they were all together, they were in the police station there in uh, Amsterdam, and Mr. Tenboom had his daughter. His wife was dead already by the time. She had died earlier, but he had his daughters, I think a son there, and they stood in a circle, and he quoted with them this psalm. And then they were dispersed to the prison camps. And you may know the story that Corey ended up at Ravensbrook, Ravensbrook, with her sister Betsy. And some of the things they endured there, unbelievable. But one of the, one of the ways that, uh, ironically, they saw the hand of God, they were in a barracks that was infested with fleas. And Corey says, you know, I was complaining. Why would God let us have fleas on top of everything else we're suffering? And Betsy, ever the optimist, said, Corey, don't you see the blessing of this? Blessing? How could there be a blessing in fleas? She said, the guards do not come into this barracks. They don't come in here to search because of the fleas. And the sisters had smuggled in a Bible to that barracks, and they used that Bible to lead other prisoners to, or other uh, inmates, captives, to the Lord, some of whom would die in the weeks ensuing. 
It's interesting, about one year into their captivity, Betsy told Corey, you know, Corey, I believe you will survive this war. She said, I, I believe you will be released and you will go around the world telling people what we've experienced here. And, and wouldn't you know, right at the one-year mark, there was an order given mistakenly that called for the release of Betsy and Corey. Now, I'll get back more to the Betsy story in a minute. But Corey ends up free off of what seemingly was a clerical error, the providence of God. Okay, exemption from evil. More to say on that in a minute. But I want you to see also the promise elaborated, not only exemption from evil, but angelic attention. Look at verses 11 and 12, Psalm 91, 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Okay, angelic attention. You know, Psalm 34, 7 says, uh, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Hebrews 1.14 talks about we've, we've entertained angels unawares. I was talking to this um, missionary from Haiti last week, and we were talking about you know, angelic uh, deliverance, and he gave me some stories unbelievable. And I, I remember one time I was traveling for Pensacola Christian in, um, internationally. I was going to missionary schools all over the world, and I was in Japan, and I remember I had come off a train, and I've got to get on the next train, and it's got to happen fast. And I do not speak any language other than English. And in this particular station, it was hard to find anything written in English. And I surely can't read Japanese. And I remember standing there thinking, I've got to make a quick decision, and I don't know where I need to go. And a Japanese man came up to me and spoke in perfect English. Sir, do you need help? I said, you speak English. I don't, I don't know Japanese. Where are you trying to go? And I told him, he said, you're going to get on that train, you're going to go two stops, you'll switch, and then you'll get on. I said, okay. And I went to get on the train, and I turned around. He was gone. Now, he could have disappeared into the crowd. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, his English was impeccable. I, I don't know how many times in my life I've been that close to life-threatening trouble, and God intervened. My sister was a sweetmate with a couple of girls in college who um, their, their dad was a pastor. And one day they had gone home to their, their place in Niceville, Florida. They'd gone down to the Gulf of Mexico. And where, where they lived, you could get out and find some quiet spots, uh, spots along nice white sandy beach. And they went out to have a picnic one afternoon. And while they were there, they, they noticed this one man came by and he was uh, kind of creepy looking. And as he walked by, they just had this feeling like, something's not right. And all of a sudden, another man came over the dunes behind them. They said he was dressed in a collared shirt and jeans, and he had just these brilliant eyes. And he said to them, he'll pray in front of you if you let him. Well, these girls were not attracted by this man, but they said, excuse me? He said, he'll pray in front of you if you let him. And they thought, well, that's kind of odd. Maybe that's a little indication it's time to skedaddle. So they gathered up their things, and they said when they gathered everything up, they went to look at the man who had said that. He was gone. They said there was no car nearby. There was... Later that night, Londa, one of the two sisters, was reading from her Bible about how some have entertained angels unawares. She said, I really think God sent us that guy for just the right time to say, get out of here. There's angelic attention. But also there's protection from predators. Look at verse 13. Protection from predators. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. Now the adder, that's, that's a cobra. That's a deadly poisonous snake. Many believe that when Cleopatra took her life, that whole thing with Mark Anthony, and she ends up taking her life, um, that she used a cobra to do it. They were deadly. Once you were bitten, you, you died instantly. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. David Brainer was missionary to the North American Indians. And one day he was in the woods praying about these, this tribe that he was trying to reach. God, please open their hearts, open their eyes. Well, he didn't know. The tribesmen were actually watching him from the, the trees, among them the chief. And they had arrows drawn. They were ready to take him out. But the chief told them not to. They watched. All of a sudden, a rattlesnake came up behind David Brainer. He didn't even know the snake was there. And all of a sudden, the snake coiled like it was going to strike and the chief said, maybe great spirit of the sky will take care of this man for us. And all of a sudden, the snake released its coil and slithered off into the woods. And 
Then the chief said, maybe great spirit of the sky, protect this man. Later, Brainerd went to see them in person and he said, I have a message from God. And the, the chief said, he made clear, we listen to you. And it was God's protection that spared Brainerd's life. Protection from predators. One more here, and that is um, deliverance for the devoted. Deliverance for the devoted. Look at verse 14. Because he, the individual, has set his love upon me, therefore, okay, because he has a relationship with me, therefore will I deliver him. I'll set him on high because he hath known my name. So if you're in a place of attack or if you're in a place of flood, where do you go for protection? You go to high ground. I'll set him on high. Verse 15, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay, I'm sorry, the message has been a little bit long tonight, so I'm going to wrap it up here. But does that mean we'll never have trouble? No, Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Job 5, 7 says, Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Let me ask you this. Does this psalm mean that Christians will never die? Well, of course not. Everybody's going to die. Now, it is appointed unto man once to die. So what does it mean? Betsy, Corey's sister, one week before their release succumbed to an illness that she had contracted while there in the prison camp, and Betsy died a week before she would have been released. So Corey gets out and Betsy dies. What about that? This is where we have to trust God. You are perfectly protected until God's appointed time. You should do your part. You take the supplements, you know, carry if you wish. I mean, be, do things to protect yourself. Is it wrong for a Christian to have insurance? You know, but here's the deal. Ultimately, God promises, if you seek me first, my kingdom, my righteousness, all these things will be added to you. You take care of your walk with me. I'll take care of the protection. And you're impervious to annihilation until it's God's time to take you home. And what peace.